Hello, Earth citizens, in the year 2021, you are tuned into Pink Noise with Very Sherry. And the day that this is airing on Cafe Racer Radio, January 3rd, which just happens to be the birthday of my most dedicated listener. And I wanted to pause in advance of today's conversation to give a special celebratory shout out to my longtime gal pal, Cheryl Smith. I'll be toasting to the spirit gods who brought you into my life that day at the Gay Pride Parade on Capitol Hill in the mid-90s when we were dancing to Salon Betty and the big-haired sex circus. So I dedicate this episode to you, Miss Cheryl Smith. I love you, and I'm grateful you're in my life. Today, I'm talking to the founder of the Night Circus, a different kind of circus. And it's produced by a different kind of gal. And in the moment that I pressed record on this conversation with Lisa, we were already down the rabbit hole into a rich dialogue about the handmade unique necklace that Lisa was wearing. And I happen to have one by the same artist. And I always think of this beautiful woman because I don't know her name. And you're the only other person I know that's ever had this necklace. (laughs) Well, my favorite piece about this is that I have always loved being in connection with artists and having handmade things. It's such a joy and it's, it's a privilege to have, you know, someone's creative talent, like, like a handmade one of a kind. There's just something so precious about that. And, and that you had this story for me, like <laughs> a beautiful story about how it even started for her, how, how the process began. And I love this therapy for her and their art therapy for others. Absolutely. Yeah. And that you added so much more to this necklace for me. I love marveling at how random choices like Lisa choosing to wear that particular necklace on the day that we met up could lead to infusing my piece with so much more energy and richness. And we're only just getting started. And so now (laughs) we begin at the beginning, which is where I asked Lisa to introduce herself. Lisa Jefka Jefka Edos, Seminole OS. My name is Lisa, and I am Seminole. I want to recognize that we operate on the traditional homelands of the Puyallup people. Thank you, Lisa. It's good to have you acknowledge that. I'm here in Seattle on the land of the Duwamish people. And of course, we're here on Pink Noise Radio, diving right into the good stuff. You strike me as someone who doesn't act without thought. On occasion, but but predominantly, I would say you are correct. Mm. There's sort of a mischievous look that came in your eye as you like tried to see what side of the fence you were on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that my Libra is pretty balanced, but at times... Yeah, I get a little mischievous and I, everyone loves a good impulsive decision every now and then. What's one of your memorable impulsive decisions? Often my impulsive decisions when they're truly impulsive are 
in nature of following a Pied Piper <laughs> or some kind of, oh my goodness, this happened and we have to get on here and do this now. I'll come up with a, a recent one in line with Burning Man, but the, the last festival that from last summer, I decided to break off. I always like to have my own alone time. And this year I was especially needing some, just some extra time to myself and to adventure. And I was doing a little bit of soul repair myself. And I had, through the course of a variety of, of events where I just said yes to whatever showed up for me, I found myself in Slut Garden dancing in the go-go boxes for a while. And after that, you know, wonderful exchange, I suddenly found myself out at over off the nine o'clock. And at that period of time, right as I arrived, I was arriving towards the backstage area. And considering my experience being around stage and especially in green rooms and backstage platforms and areas, there were these group of girls that were kind of coming around the corner as I was. And there was a stairwell that was leading up to the sound stage. And I guess technically you would be a Burning Man bouncer said, oh, are you one of the dancers? And I said, yes, because I happen to dance. <laughs> so I found myself up go-go dancing for Diplo <laughs> for a while that night. And that was, that was fun. That was definitely worth just saying yes and following the Pied Piper, not knowing where it was going to lead me to and looking out over the audience and just being like, all right, here we go. Let's rock this. <laughs> and were there people that didn't expect to see you there that knew who you were? Burning Man is often a sea of strangers, you know, or, or friends you just haven't met yet. So I would say that the, not in the audience, but definitely as I took platform next to a world famous artist with women who are at least a foot taller than me and have the stereotypical Instagram babe, you know, outfits on. And there was me with all of my funk and hips and curvy nature I was received well because my personality extended and, and said, I have the right to be here. But I found that the artist himself, he was very kind. He immediately introduced himself, was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And we were just having a great exchange. But there were certainly other people who were questioning like, how did she get here? You could just see it in their eyes, but I just kept on dancing. So why not? Why not? <laughs> One of those just experiences you have in this otherworldly place. And it sounds like you're saying yes. Yeah, that was a conscious choice. You went through a season of saying yes. I did. So I, I just, I had had some personal heartbreak that that particular trip actually. And I just really wanted to to see what the universe had to provide. And so by saying yes, was not typically within my nature to just 
go with the, I, I do like to go with the flow, but, but typically it is with intention. And in that particular time, it was with no specific agenda or intention. It was just, let's see. So, yes. Let's, let's see what the universe wants me to experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I, I've often wondered what it would be like to set that intention to just receive whatever's coming to you with the answer, yes. And so some of the things you've said yes to in your life, like I'd love to talk about alma mater, (laughs) this this incredible creative community that just blossomed in Tacoma out of of the brilliant visionary mind of of one and a few like-minded allies, birthed this, this haven, floors of spaces, of recording studios, of restaurants, of co-working, of art make and art sell, art display, art celebrate. And tell me about your journey to get to there. I'll try to keep it to the bullet points, but. Bullet points, bullet (laughs) points. We don't want any bullet points, Lisa. (laughs) We want to hear what was going on for you in your life so that you were able to make this choice. And I know that you've done so much with it since you've been the executive director. I, I have been, I've been really fortunate to steward this organization in the way that I have. But to your point, I found myself in this position because of my background, as would anyone. So my journey to get here is, I grew up in Alaska, predominantly. I was a fisherman's daughter and we lived subsistently in a small little village in Alaska. We lived in Kenai and Kasilof. Kenai was the, the larger town and it was a very small community. And much of my childhood was spent thinking, how am I gonna get out of here? One thing that was crucial is I did have an opportunity when I was a kid to start a business. So I opened my first business when I was 14. And it was, it was in line with everything I was seeing outside of Alaska. It was, you know, it was the grunge era and 70s style clothes was really coming in. And, you know, thrift stores were becoming hip and cool as opposed to just something that poor kids had access to. I always wanted to learn how to make candles. And so I got a, I was fortunate enough to receive a grant from this state of Alaska and the economic district development. And on $2,000, I started my first business, which was called Brand Washed. And I started a thrift store and I just got lucky. I had these great older women who loved me and they had basically pressed their seventies clothes from their kids and like put them in an attic. And somehow I was receiving all of this amazing vintage clothing. So I had a fairly successful business for a year, which was just very unique and different from most high school experiences in general, but especially in the community that I was in. And with that, I learned how to speak before the Chamber of Commerce and I became like a poster child a little bit. Meanwhile, it also meant that I had a physical space where all my friends could come and party. And it was there that I had my very first event. 
I thought at the beginning of the story, you were telling me that you were 14 when you had your first business. I was. Okay. So now you own a thrift store and you're throwing events and you're how old? 14. You're still 14. This isn't a story where you just fast forward in time and now you're. No. You're 14 and you're throwing these events mm-hmm. with bands and food vendors and. Well, we didn't have food vendors, but I, I worked out a deal with McDonald's. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wow, this yeah. is a pretty big piece that you got out of Alaska and you gave me some stats about what it might be like to be a teen there, what you might be into. And now you're telling me that, that this was you at that age, creating this entirely different reality for herself. I mean, you were building the universe you were looking for. <laughs> you, you made it happen right where you were. You're like, if I can't get out, I'm going to bring what I want out in. At 14, Lisa. Where did you channel that from? How did you, how did you know how to get your needs met like that? I learned not to be afraid to ask. From the worst, where? Everywhere. The worst anyone can tell you is no. And then if they say no, then someone else will say yes. And who taught you that? It's a good question. I would say it's a combination of the women in my life and certainly my father. My father has a remarkable life. He has overcome so many things and he is a hustler. And I mean that literally. But I would say that of all the skills that I've gleaned from him, that part of me certainly resonates. And he just always kept asking. So I get some tenacity in there. Is that what I see? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So I'm getting this impression of you admiring the part of your father that enabled you to give yourself permission to just show up and ask. And, and it sounds like you must have had some, well, I don't know, must have, but from the way you're speaking, I'm imagining there was some emotional support for your independence I did receive emotional support. I would say at that time in my life, my mother had been quite quite sick after she gave birth to my youngest sister. And we were in, my, my other sister and I were in foster care with a family that we're actually close to to this day. And with my foster mother and her children, there was just a very different framework from how my family had shown up. So suddenly I was with, I was with community with people that had a very good background, provided me support that I needed that was outside of my intellectual brain at that point. It it definitely was a mature, more mature lens that I was seeing the world in. And I think also just having the framework of a supportive family and emotional support in that way was something I had never experienced before to that capacity. So it, it really resonated with me. 
I had brand washed for almost two years. And at that point, had pursued finding other ways to get out of get out of Alaska. And so through my, at that point, kind of troubled childhood, I got myself out of Alaska. I came to Washington and in a very beautiful serendipitous way, I met who is now my husband. He provided me zeal to do life differently. And he was very involved and still is very involved in the arts community, specifically the glass arts community. And he was from Tacoma. So here I am, I was 19 years old and we moved, I had two kids, I was married and we, we were forced to move to Tacoma. And in the first week that we were here, everything that we owned was stolen. But Tacoma is kind of a blessing that way. I found myself, I found myself suddenly at a, a position where I had a, I was managing a coffee shop. And at that time it was the only coffee shop in all of, all of Tacoma really. Well, as you know, especially, you know, in late nineties, early two thousands, where do artists go? They, <laughs> they go to the coffee shops. So through that, I looked at Tacoma as a riddle and I started to try to figure out each of my customers, how they related to one another, especially in a kind of a small community as Tacoma and kind of fill in the pieces. And so with that, I started to get really involved in the arts community. I started utilizing the platform that I had, which is my cafe and hosted bands out of there. We had different storytelling nights. We had all of these offerings to the community and it was one of the few places where all ages could come and gather. Simultaneously, there was a independent nonprofit movie theater next to me. And I had worked as a film projectionist when I was still in Alaska. So I was able to go back into this teenage job that I had and, and, and take some of those talents and, and work at this, this really wonderful independent movie theater, which 17 years later, I still have a strong relationship with. And it just really opened up the world of Tacoma to me. So Tacoma had a lot of, back then especially, a lot of abandoned buildings. No one from Seattle wanted to come to Tacoma. And perhaps because of the framework that I had at a young age of just kind of taking something from nothing. When I saw, when I walked past a really gorgeous building that had a, you know, available sign in it, I would sometimes, you know, after I'd started my relationship with bands, I would, I would call that number and just say, hey, can we rent it for a night? Or can I rent it for three days? I promise to leave the space better in which I found it. And through that, I started learning how to create larger events. And so I hosted a number of technically underground all ages shows. And through that found myself living in an artist commune here in downtown with my, my two small children. I was going through separation at that time. You know, Tacoma was very different back then. It, it just looked very different. I started working with other artists. We created a festival here in Tacoma called the Urban Art Festival that existed for eight years. With that model, it was 
to enhance the urban arts, which at that, you know, back then any graffiti art or even breakdancing wasn't considered, it was considered very, very street, very urban, not mainstream, not accessible, certainly something that the city of Tacoma would fund by any means. So through this, through this festival, we, part of our mission was also to revitalize areas of Tacoma that had been underseen. Like, so we would host it at a park that perhaps no one had ever thought about hosting a festival in before. For a couple years, our group hosted it in a street, Broadway in downtown Tacoma. It's interesting to me now because I look back on it and to this day, the farmer's market in Tacoma is now operates on that same street. So now, now people are seeing those spaces in a different light. And really you broke ground. I would say so. You, yes. Yeah. You showed other organizations and the city how to do it. And so weren't we having a conversation once um, on Linda's property in the key peninsula about you wanted to know how to host events a certain way. You know, like, what are the rules that I could just, like, not break, but do what I want, how I want it? And I think what I remember talking to you about is you decided to get a job on the inside to learn what the rules are, to see how people behave when this button gets pushed or that button gets pushed. So you'd maybe know the nuances of it. Is, did, am I remembering that story right? You are very close, yes. So, and that's part of it. So with, with the festival planning, suddenly you're beholden to the, you know, permitting and what does that look like in a city? And, and so from going from these underground shows where we're working the door and, you know, flyering to the community to running a festival and ensuring that I have a liquor permit and order and, and all of that, work being done. You know, Tacoma is incestuous as are many small little little towns and Tacoma, even though it's a big city, it's got, you know, small town mentality. So I was fortunate that the people that sat on my board at the independent movie theater that I worked at eventually became the mayor and city council members. So I had an, I had friends literally that, that could at least help me and tell me like, oh, well, to get through this bureaucracy red tape, you need to do X, Y, Z. And I'm hearing that that's the gift when you talk about, well, it's a, it's a small town. It's a big city, but it's a small town. And because you, you started where you started, your interest in empty spaces and seeing the possibilities, your visionary, your just organic visionary identity of seeing empty spaces and going, something could happen here. And through this process, I've been hearing these stories, you've been building up this network, but like growing up with the city. So when your friends from the live music in a warehouse day, you know, grows up to be someone holding the purse strings or someone in charge of the red tape at a at a an official level and they're your friends. You've, you've gotten funky together. 
No, absolutely. That's very much the case. And I think it also just builds a level of trust because in, in a city vulnerable like Tacoma, where you have a sister city relationship with Seattle, you have a lot of, of people that have been here. And then you have, of course, the influx of, of other people coming in. And I don't believe that any of those things are bad. But how do you how do you allow the arts community that has existed to continue to thrive, even with the influx of gentrification. And so I feel like I was very fortunate to be in Tacoma at a time that there was a new renaissance happening where the city was becoming revitalized again. So to go back to what you had said about our com previous conversation that you and I had, had with all of this different learning experience that I was doing. I was then, you know, with my still running underground events at times and having that, that experience and what it means to build energy and creativity and, and host spaces like that, especially with the gamut of the Urban Art Festival, which we created a number of fundraisers in order to put on the festival. And so I had creative control on uh, what kind of theme we were going to have or what the space was going to be in and how I was going to get people excited about that thing in order to be able to make money for this larger community offering that we were doing. So as I started working on my daily job, working as a stagehand and learning the technical sides, still running these kind of underground events, at one point, I was actually asked by the city of Tacoma to start to be a contract worker. In, in October is the city of Tacoma's Arts Month. And with that, we have a very formal portion, which is where the mayor comes and addresses and our, our you know, Tacoma po Poet Laureate also speaks. And, and then there's also a portion where we recognize the arts and the artists. So that is where I first began to start marrying my creative side and my political side and move it together with learning from the city of Tacoma and learning from doing all of these other events and what needed to take place is where I started discovering what legal maneuvers needed to be made in order to, to keep an event functioning and also where to bend the rules. So it's just learning how to organize that chaos. So in this place of chaos, learning how to bend the rules, you birthed Night Circus. That's correct. Why did you do that? Our camp, our Burning Man camp was very small at that time. I started reflecting back on a good friend of mine, Sam O'Hara, who had wanted to create a photo shoot years ago, years in the past. And so she had asked me to participate in costuming this particular photo shoot. And the only caveat was I had to read a book first and the book was The Night Circus. And as anyone who's ever read the book, you, you almost can't help but being swept away into this magical world. Someone that I'd known for years, I ended up at her house and she just decided to reveal to me that she was ready to do her first art show and if I wanted to see her work. And I went and looked at it and it was all black and white with a splash of red. And that was Sarah Casto. And her work could not have been more perfect for that art show. 
it was it was just incredible. I dove into what it could look like, the more magic started erupting around me. Isn't it always a visual artist's dream to have an empty canvas though? <laughs> Absolutely. And I just, I love that whenever I shared my vision with my campmates, that everyone got really excited. I'm imagining that the need you're getting met is like you're building community, you're sharing your gifts. And I'm also imagining that you're creating a stage for these other people that you know and love. And seducing Seattle in the process. And seducing Seattle in the process. Seduction is, is strong. Yeah. Yeah. And what did that, what did that feel like for you to be like honoring your community in this way? I don't know if I can put to words what it felt like. I can definitely tap into some of the magic that was gleaned from that experience. And I can sure. definitely tap into having a larger vision and knowing that it was going to take me some time to get there, but that if I planted a seed and nurtured it, that it would blossom. And how often did you think back to 14 year old you with your, with your thrift store? What was, what was the name? Brand washed. Brand washed. Yeah. <laughs> how, I mean, do you, do you think back to 14 year old you when your face was something big and you're thinking, heck I did brand washed at 14. I can do anything. You know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't think back on that time until actual night of the night circus. And in between then, I also, you know, part of the underground scene that I, I had operated in in so long, I actually had a different creative partner who we had a, a organization called the Free Tacoma Project. So in order to operate that, you know, was was done with, of course, there was an allowance of alcohol and, and, and drugs or anything else or, or sex, whatever happened, but to, to allow a, a safe space to do those things and to operate. So wait, wait, where did the sex happen? <laughs> it just happened. You know, <laughs> we, that, that comes later. That's, that's where I got better at that part. Um, better at curating the sex. Exactly. <laughs> or at least safe spaces to to allow it to happen. So so the night circus was really big for me because at one point, you know, you have to set the stage. It was this gorgeous event that happened where I had hundreds of people arrive, all in costume, admiring, of course, the the canvas that I had created. And I crawled out of the rouge room and sat on the rooftop at one point in the night. And it just so happened that that particular night of the night circus was a full moon. And so the full moon hung over the night sky and there's the city of Tacoma out in front of me. And we have illegally barricaded the alleyway. So there I'm looking at this orchestration of, you know, people coming and going and, and watching the aerialists and seeing that, that moon hang in the sky above that that tree that sits out there. And it was, it was both just being so proud. I had such pride within myself because I had never created an event like that where 
Although I had a lot of support in creating it, I had always leaned on a creative partner. So I had had multiple creative partners through the Free Tacoma Project, through just any of the, whether it be Eiffel or the Urban Art Festival or any of these other operatives. This was the first time that I, I had such a strong vision within myself that I was able to lead a team. And so I ended up texting my, my former partner and just saying, I'm so, so proud of myself right now. Like I did this. I just wanted him to know that I had done something amazing. And I was so proud of myself at that moment. I had a really strong visual when you were explaining the sitting on the roof and looking down at the spectacle and the city beyond that. And you were describing this sense of pride that you felt. It took me back to the late 90s and producing an event in a warehouse with a nonprofit arts group. And my my husband, <laughs> my husband, Sean, and he and his friends started something called Flux, Flux Productions. And as part of Flux in 96, we threw a circus party in a warehouse in Seattle down in Pioneer Square. And in partnership with Equinox Gallery, who was still was run by Sam at the time, but it's now, you know, much massiver. And he supported our event by sort of sharing his nonprofit license, which gave me access to get donations of wine and beer and liquor and other accommodations and food vendors. And it was that idea, that feeling I remember of knowing that I had a role to play in producing and bringing these components together while Sean and his friends curated and built this whole stage and set up and everyone had a costume and a role to play and brought in performance artists and visual artists and music artists and food and beverage purveyors and and all all like so much time just to come back to zero right charge like five dollars at the door just like enough and we did it again and again in 97 and in 98 and it was never for money and it was always for love and the memories and the stories like they stay with you and so i'm imagining you doing this and having all of that experience and i'm hoping there was a bottom line win for your burning man camp it was so as you can imagine it was it was very similar whereas it was a very small amount of money to, to enter and we had curated quite a large event. But to your point, bigger than any of that was what a joy it was to produce the night circus. Yeah. And there's something beyond that. And I think the reason why I wanted to share like my, my personal experience of producing, you know, a 500 person event with a theme and bringing in all the different parts and pieces so there's a lot that I'm I'm familiar with. And yet when I talked to you at Linda's property this past summer, I learned something about you that I believe represents a core value that's your one of your one of your operating systems. And so when you look at an event, you don't just take care of all the things that 
I know about that other people would know about if they produce events. But you told me specific stories around inclusivity that hadn't even occurred to me. A few things is, is when I was young, I, I spent a lot of time with my aunt and my aunt is a quadriplegic. So much of my most young and formative years were spent when she was so excited to get her first uh, motorized wheelchair. And then that provided her the independence to be able to have a, a vehicle. So she had a van and then she also had her very own apartment, which in itself as a, she, she became a quadriplegic when she was 16 and she had lived in California at the time. So Alaska already is difficult to get around, especially if you have mobility issues. And so I didn't know anything different. I didn't ever recognize that. I'm not saying that I, I didn't understand that this was a big deal to but I had no way of knowing in my little, you know, four and five-year-old, six-year-old brain to know what a big deal it was to be able to go camping with my aunt and have her drive us there and navigate and for her to hold as an independent woman, her own apartment. It actually wasn't until late into my adulthood that I recognized how unique, unfortunately, that is for, for a lot of young women with any kind of disability. So, but with that, you know, writing on my aunt's lap, I, I saw the world as I continued to see it for the rest of my life, which was what it looks like from a wheelchair. When, when you are at, you know, waist level of most people in the world and what kind of personality or attention or how to ask and then also how to be seen and what, what experience is like if you have, you know, the, if you're unable to use your legs in the same way that other people do. When I do look at events, I've always, even before I knew what ADA accessibility was or the terminology for it, I understood the importance of a four to five foot clearance and moving through spaces and what stairs, how detrimental stairs could be in different scenarios. And I'm imagining that's because you could immediately say, oh, I'd like my aunt to come to this event. Or if my aunt were coming to this event, how would this be for her? Right. So as you're designing the spaces and the entrance and the thoroughfares and the go-betweens, you're thinking what it would be like if I was rolling along at waist height. Yeah. Especially when it comes to restrooms, you know. It's still maddening to this day that restrooms are designed the way that they are <laughs> and the way that you open them and, and just the lack of privacy at times or, or the need for more. Yeah, just I, I could go off on that for a while. Mm. But, but then also, I think it's important to know that my, my mother also was a caretaker for a young boy named Cheyenne, and he was a deaf and mute. He was born deaf and mute. And so as a young age, learning elementary sign language, and then also just he, in my teenage years, he actually received a surgery where he was able to hear for the first time, was remarkable in advances in science. And, and I think that always changed my perspective on just all of our senses and what that means. I also have suffered from hearing loss most of my life. 
and have had hearing aids from the time I was probably around 12. So I had to be that kid with like a big headset in the front of the class, you know, and, and I used to wear these big glasses and, you know, my eyesight was never very good. And maybe that's why I'm so textile, you know, responsive now. I don't know. But you, you compensate, overcompensate by being a savant and all these other categories. <laughs> exactly. So, so when it came to the night circus, I think what I really appreciated about that book and everything too was just, I had never seen a book that had really talked about pathways, had never talked about food and, and curation when it came to, to all the senses. You know, it, it exquisitely detailed tastes and smells and, and all of those things that really spoke to me as an individual based on, you know, what I had experienced growing up. So I had always, you know, thought about different events, but it wasn't really until the night circus that I was really able to tap into just trying to meet an event that could actually have, have something for all of our senses. Mm, I want to hear more about you tapping into these sensory pleasures. <laughs> what is what is something that right now, like if you were to tell me about a favorite smell, what would it be? With the pandemic, I decided I needed my own oasis in my bedroom. Never in my adult life have I ever had my own bedroom until this point in time. So actually never, there was a very few times in my childhood where I ever had my own bedroom. Typically I shared with my grandmother or my siblings or my husband or my children, but, or a partner. So this is the first time that I've ever had a bedroom and I really wanted to make it my own. So I love caring for plants, but my room does not sit in a great space in my house for a lot of plant life. So I, I invested in grow lights that also, you know, keep, they neutralize as well. And I bought a humidifier. And so now my bedroom is lush and green, but with my humidifier, I found this amazing gardenia smell. And so I love that every time I walk into my room, it is warm and humid and light. And it just, the fragrance of gardenia is just everywhere. <sighs> okay, I wanna keep going. Can you tell me about a favorite sound? It's two things, actually. I can't pick between the two. I didn't really ever hear the rain until I was probably about seven or eight. I didn't realize I had not heard that sound before. I don't know how to describe it. It's not that I probably didn't hear it at all. I've discovered now that I don't hear it the way other people do. I remember it was the winter, of, so I was not quite eight yet. My mother had been a housekeeper for a family that went away on vacation. And so we got to stay in their home overnight. And I, they had a tin roof and at first I was really scared of the noise. And then I realized it was the sound of, of rain hitting the roof that night. And it was just such a melody that to this day, 
it's anywhere where there's a space that has a tin roof or anything like that. I'm always trying to to be a part of it because I want to hear that noise of of the tapping of the rain. It's not something I get to hear often, but when I can, I just I fall in love and I melt with it. So, so you were eight and you're hearing it fall on a tin roof. And it was the first time that you were aware that there could be a sound to falling rain. Mm -hmm. And so what does it do for you now? Are you, do you get transported with it? I always think back on that memory every time. And then I, I also, I think it was just a a super special memory in general because it was one of the few times where I was just alone with my mother and we were, you know, in this space that was outside of our own, you know, is this, we lived in a very small little tiny house at the time. And so to be in this really big, you know, fancy house, hearing the rain for the first time, it was also memorable because my mother allowed me to watch Dirty Dancing, which was new at the time. So for some reason, all of those things always swirl around in my, you know, the same night, such so many memories. Yeah, I, I always think back on that. You were going to share with me another sound that has uh, a distinct memory for you. I just, I always think of drumming, like a, a deep drumming that just resonates, the bass resonates with your, your body. And in my culture, when we sit and sweat, we sit in ceremony with a, a drum. And, and I don't always know if I'm hearing sounds the way other people do, but when you can feel it echo and pulsate through your body has always been you know, some of my favorite, favorite memories, sitting on the ground so you can feel the ground quake or when I was, you know, in school still, where the orchestra was, I was, I wasn't, you know, a singer, I was always in the alto section. So I was closer to where the bass was. And I just, I loved that pulsating feeling. And I think, you know, later in years after going from orchestra and and symphony choir to being in, you know, even in the middle of a desert and dancing with a whole bunch of you know, friendly strangers, I've, I've always found that that pulsating beat that just kind of drives through your body. And, and that's where I think I've found my, my body rhythm. You said in my culture, that drumming is significant. And how would you define your culture? So I am a Seminole, I'm a citizen of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. And our people, Muskogee people, have we we have a stomp dance that occurs and in stomp it's the women actually are the ones that hold the beat we we have shakers on our legs traditionally they were made out of turtle shells and and you would you would stomp and you'd keep the beat and then the men sing and in in a sweat lodge and in many many indigenous cultures all over all over celebrate or have a certain kind of ceremony that also has to do with with a sweat lodge of sorts. And often there is a singing and a healing properties of, of drumming. I would say that's pretty, pretty universal. 
So getting back, we were talking about senses. Yes, yes. I love this journey we're taking down the down the senses and the pleasures that you find there. We've talked about smell and sound. What about taste? Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. Well, immediately, I have to admit that a lot of my taste has been ruined because I have traveled to Lebanon. I now understand why they call it the Fertile Crescent because Lebanon is one of the most beautiful countries I've ever visited, and it is exquisite with food and everything. Everything about Lebanon is just phenomenal. But food is food is is like making love. <laughs> like they, everything about that culture is is just incredible. It's it's you know I would say not just the Lebanese cuisine as well but it you know throughout that that region the Levantine region is just remarkable can you describe a dish to me I'm I'm kind of blanking here on what Lebanese food is I I feel so ignorant in this moment that's okay there's so many dishes so so Lebanon sits on the Mediterranean so it's surrounded by all this gorgeous blue blue water and then, you know, Syria is, is it, Lebanon's a very small country, Syria and a lot of Lebanon in itself has this hillside. And if you can imagine it grown, it is grown there. So pine nuts come from that region. Any of your, because it is, has a relationship with the water, you have a lot of fish. Spices galore and, and just a lot of fruits and vegetables that can't be shipped out because of their delicacies, I would say. So I should specify that even if you're sitting down for a coffee, even if you're in some hole in the wall, I'm not talking, you know, trendy, Americanized spaces, but you are always served with fresh vegetables, whether it be fresh tomatoes or cucumbers or some baba ganoush or some kind of hummus and some some fresh bread everywhere you go. And then they have this amazing offering called sitar, which is this, you know, exquisite blend of different herbs and spices that is often layered on on bread with a little olive oil and baked and it is just exquisite. But every dish is is often made with so much love and and they're all laid out in such an arrangement even from your smallest little side road spaces. Lebanese people are also so proud of their food. And so my experience with that culture was also that they love to watch you eat. They love to feed you constantly. Like that's, that's, you know, hospitality to them. So as you can imagine, being as close to my senses as I am, to walk out in the warm, hot sun and overlooking the Mediterranean and immediately have you know, a man say, come, come with me, come with me. Have you had your coffee yet? And, you know, bring us in to this, you know, space probably about 12 feet by six feet where he had his deli and proceed to make us Turkish coffee and feed me in the warm sun. He just, he was like, have you tried this yet? And put it in my mouth and tried this. Have you, and I can't tell you everything that he fed me, but I can tell you it was all exquisite. 
And I ate my way through that country for sure. And slowly as I came back to the States, I discovered that food is just not the same. And so to this day, I try to recreate so many of those dishes because it's forever ruined my palate. <laughs> Thank you for giving me something new to put on my wish list when I travel. Lebanon just just got got added. <laughs> I recommend it. Yeah, I I am loving this journey down down through the senses with you. It's just delightful. What about something you love the feel of? Fur. Mm. I love fur. <laughs> Next to your skin. I do. I grew up working in leather and working with fur, and I I know it well. Is that how come you were able to repair soles of shoes? No, actually. I discovered that from Gabriel, who I mentioned before, my former partner. He was a cobbler for many years, so he taught us all some of the quick trade secrets. Nice. But you have other skills and talents in uh, leather work. Correct. Yeah. So... Fur, I just, I find so much about fur is fascinating, the different grains to it. I have gotten to a point in my life where I can typically touch it and know what kind of fur it is, what kind of animal it's come from. So I, I, I'm not always 100% positive, but because some are a little hard to judge, but for the most part, yes. And what do you love to look at? What's eye candy for you? That's a hard one, but I would say a combination of light and architecture. Mm. I just, I love, I love architecture that when so much work has gone into it. So for instance, you know, at the beginning of this year, I was actually in the Yucatan with my my boyfriend, Josh, and, and just to see some of the, the ancient Mayan architecture and ruins and, and just to see how, what a labor of love, you know, it had gone in, how much work had gone into that, as well as even just simple spaces. I just, I love, I love intention behind design and light has such a magical quality. I love that projection mapping is becoming, you know, a thing that is more obtainable to most because light is just such it's so fantastic how it messes with your eye and perhaps it's all my years of working in projection and how different colors can can blur and and cause you to see things in 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 you know almost like a different dimension and how especially with doing events for so many years how i can dress up any space you know my favorite my favorite thing is when i've held held an event in a space and used light and, and other tricks to dress it up and to stand in a space afterwards with someone and say, didn't you do something around here and not recognize that they were standing in the very space or the very room or the very building that they had, you know, spent, you know, such an intimate evening with. So. Because it got transformed so much that it wasn't recognizable in the daylight. Correct. When you took the veil away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. 
you know that 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 was an incredible experience. What's an, what a beautiful area. Well, how would you like to end our conversation? I feel like we didn't get to talk about the magic that is happening at Alma Mater. I'm reading about where the organization is going and what the values are. And when I read here about the value of art as connection and just reading right from Alma Mater's page, art is a gift amidst consumer culture. It's a tool for provoking social change. It's a voice, a laugh, a song for what we offer cannot express. Like it's this idea that it is so much more tangible than a physical thing. I mean, art tells stories. It moves us. It transports us mentally, sometimes physically. I mean, it's, I've been so attached to the to my experience of being in and around the creative world. I don't know what I would do without it. And I don't even consider myself an artist, but there is something essential to me about being around the creative process, being associated with the, the eruption, the, the innovation of creativity. And it seems like that's a core commitment that everyone at Alma Mater has made. I would, I would say that, and I would say to start us off in this end segment, I'll go back to the beginning where I said I was a fisherman's daughter. When I was furloughed and my former director called me and told me that he was going to be resigning from alma mater, and he asked me if I would temporarily step in his place and, and steward this, this building and this relationship and this organization, I without a pause, definitely said yes. However, it was, it was really heavy to think about. It wasn't, it wasn't a path that I saw for myself. I never thought one day I'm gonna be executive director or, or I'm gonna to try to be that. That wasn't ever my intention. And very shortly after stepping into that place and, and becoming, stepping into that, a new role in leadership within this organization, I was in relationship with the partner organization whose name is WEND and W-E-N-D. And I said, you know, I would really like to apply for this permanent position. In fact, I don't feel like anyone else can hold this relationship because of the longevity I have in not only the arts culture and community here in Tacoma, but also the established relationship I have specifically with this neighborhood that I've been a part of for decades now, and my specific relationship with this building prior to renovation and then since, which as you may know, I have also held a night circus in this building. So I received the application at, I want to say like six o'clock in the morning. And it just, it was one of those, before I changed my notifications on my phone, it was like one of those first notifications that popped up and woke me up in the morning. And the first thing that I read was the definition of wind. And wind is, they consider themselves to be wayfinders for a better world. And then I proceeded to read the application for my job and Never before have I thought so affirmatively that I belong somewhere. 
and it just filled me with emotion. And I, in order to apply for the job, you had to write an essay. And I immediately sat down and wrote an essay of my life story and saying, here's where I came from. Here is all of the different pathways that had led me to this particular place. And I see this as an alignment. I see this as a windfall and this is where I need to be. And obviously they agreed. Obviously they agreed. I did have to compete against, you know, it was a, it was a national. And so there were people from all over the country that I was in competition with, so to speak. And I'm, I'm grateful to be vetted that way and to be able to steward this, this organization at this time. And nobody could do it as good as you do. I do believe that right now. <laughs> I think I'm exactly where I need to be right now. Yeah. Man, I bet that feels incredible. It does. It's not, you know, it's a pandemic. It doesn't always feel easy. But some of the best I advice I received was actually from a, a dear friend and who I'd consider to be a mentor, Tracy Rector. And when I first was accepted into this position, she said, congratulations, just know that I'm going to give you the advice that was once bestowed upon me. Don't expect it to ever get easy. That's not why you're here. You need to find out for yourself why you're here. And it's not because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's to show up more as you. For me, it's because I'm a caretaker. Oh, it's so beautiful, Lisa. What a gift you are. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you get to shine your light so bright where it really can impact so many. And I realized that we need a part two to talk about all the incredible things you've done this year with the food distribution using the space in a whole new way to feed Tacoma, to feed those who are food insecurity issues and to make it accessible and available, calling in volunteers using the space that would otherwise be hosting community events where people can't gather. So instead, like, yeah, there's so much more to talk about. And I know I need to respect your time. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being here and showing up and talking with me today.